This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Cheryl Laird, who is one of the two co-authors of Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. This book was published just recently in February 2020 by Princeton University Press. Authors are Cheryl Laird and Ismail White. And Cheryl is going to talk to us a little bit about this book. But first, I want to talk to Cheryl about how she and Ismail came to this project and how they also, and tell, to ask them to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this particular project. So welcome, Cheryl. Hi, how are you? Good. <laughs> Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about how you and your co-author came to the project and also um, where you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so uh, I'm an assistant professor of government and legal studies at Bowdoin College. Uh, and Ishmael and I came to this project some years ago. We actually started collecting the original data from this in probably 2012. Uh, so we had met, I was a graduate student at Ohio State University and he was faculty there, an assistant professor in political science. And we were both working on projects. I was working on my dissertation and Ishmael was working on his research agenda. And we were thinking about African-Americans because we both did work um, doing that. And he actually was my advisor for my dissertation, um, focusing on African-American political behavior. And I think one of the things that we really wanted to understand was how do we think about the partisanship African-Americans have demonstrated um, for basically the last like 50 years in American politics? Like how do we explain that? And that a lot of the literature that we have so far in political science provides us a lot of explanation about how white voter participation typically happens. And also even literature on African-American political behavior gives us some idea of how group identity influences political behavior, but it doesn't actually explain the maintenance of the partisanship, right? Basically, how do we see it happening year after year, election after election, this strong and high-level turnout for Democratic candidates, um, and particularly with the, the federal election and the presidential election. Uh, and so we were trying to understand, okay, well, what explains the maintenance of this? How do you get a group of people to basically perform a collective action at such high numbers, like a collective behavior as a group, such high numbers consistently? And so that's what we were examining in, in this project. And this is a really interesting project where you're pulling together understanding um, political behavior 
but you're also trying to think about it in context of electoral outcomes and self-interest um, and individual self-interest. And so what I found really interesting in going through your book is you start to look at sort of ideological deviation as well. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the framework for thinking about the term that you use in the book, which is racialized social constraint. Yeah. So uh, it has a, a couple layers to it, right? So we basically argue, like, if you, there was a quick takeaway from the book, is that Black partisanship is maintained through Black social networks. And that's where the constraint actually comes from. It's going to be the social interactions that African Americans are engaging in with other Blacks um, that actually helps to reinforce the partisanship. And part of that becomes important because there is diversity in political viewpoints amongst African Americans. Um, and the data we show earlier early on in the book demonstrates that we can see African-Americans who are conservative on a number of political policy issues, those that are moderate, those are that are more liberal. Um, and that goes across the board from anything from economic policy to social policy to race um, targeted policy, that there is actually more variation than I think often is understood because we do see the partisan behavior amongst African-Americans. So if you have different individuals with different ideological viewpoints on things, how do you then understand a behavior where the majority of the group, and not only like over 50%, but like disproportionately like 70, 80, 90% of the group is participating in a group behavior where for some of them, one might argue that in terms of their beliefs and politics, ideologically, they may not be individuals who would align with those uh, with with that with that decision, right? Align with that political decision of of the partisanship. So how how do you get that to happen? Like how do you get, for instance, a black conservative um, to be somebody who then also is loyal to the Democratic Party? Um, and we argue that one of the things that is going to be a part of this is this racialized social constraint that there is an understood norm in the black community that has basically developed since the civil rights movement um, and the passage of civil rights legislation under democratic leadership, um, the access to government electoral office for African-Americans through the Democratic Party has led to a consolidation, basically an alignment with the party amongst African-Americans, viewing them as the party that is most likely to uh, enact policy or move forward in politics in a manner that is going to be beneficial for African-Americans, right? And so individuals who are within the Black community have understood that as a norm. So even if you're a conservative-leaning individual, it's understood norm that this is something that the group does. And also that if one was to decide to defect away or basically move away from said norm and maybe vote with the Republican Party, especially in a presidential contest, um, that individuals in the Black community would frown strongly against that, right? Because the power that African-Americans have been able to have in politics as a minority group in a majority-based system has been because of the fact that they have been able to organize as a collective, as a group, to leverage their minority voice in the system. Um, and so one of the ways to do that is to ensure that people who are going to maybe do things that seem to be out of step with where the group is aligned or has decided to um, push their political view uh, know that the group doesn't necessarily approve of that and also sanction them for it. Uh, and so that is how that racialized social constraint works. 
so that it is it is both um, identification within the group itself, but also the way that members of that group may look at you if you deviate from that norm. Is that correct? That is correct. And the effectiveness of that is, you know, because someone would say, well, why do I worry about what people think of me, right? Could easily be an argument in response to that. And and for African-Americans, it actually matters very deeply. And part of that, I think, further in terms of the argument that we put forward, um, you have to think about the racial history of African-Americans within the United States. And one of that heavily involves racial segregation, right? So in a day-to-day setting for African-Americans, Americans, their lived experience is not only very much defined by race, but their interactions day to day is disproportionately African American, right? So it's like kind of, I think maybe in our book, I said we something we said something like eight to nine times out of ten, like African Americans are interacting literally day to day, just who I'm making contact with with other blacks, right? So now your social relationships are beyond just friend networks or um, people you casually pass day to day. I mean, like it's it's encompassing almost of your daily life, right? And and your familial ties. So this understood norm that's been not only um, disseminated and, and understood through Black spaces, but these Black spaces are where you live, right? It is where you interact with. Um, and even if you aren't in those spaces, your familial ties and your friendship networks can help to reinforce this understanding of this partisan norm. And, and you note in one of the chapters, uh, I think it's the second second substantive chapter, um, that this is coming out of essentially the history of slavery in the United States and racial apartheid in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about how, I mean, I understand sort of the segregation has been with us as well, um, but how you note that the, the sort of very dynamic of this group interaction is coming out of um, the period of enslavement. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's all an understanding, you know, how do you get people to collectively engage in something and 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 participate in things and, and in some cases even in high risk endeavors. Right. So when we look at slavery in the text, we talk about the history of things like slave revolts or even decisions by slaves to escape plantations and organizing on plantations to do that. Again, I think often in the history of it, people don't think of these decisions um, or, or these politics as something that is very strategic and deliberate and the agency African-Americans are having in these situations. But the organizing to be capable of, of doing some of this uh, requires not only a collective understanding of what is the group interest and what is what is for the good of the group group, right? But it also means that you have to be able to basically rid the group of any individuals who may threaten the likelihood of you being able to, to, to do this. So in even one case in the text, we cite to Frederick Douglass, speaking of, of, of a number of slaves that were organizing to leave a plantation and someone, um, one, another slave was going to be basically telling that information to the master, right? Was basically leaking this information. And they brought that individual in to a group meeting and essentially told them, if you basically tell on us, we are going to have to harm you, right? Uh, and so this idea of sanctioning people socially, right? And that that individual eventually like ran off, like they couldn't even find them really to, to be able to sanction them um, because they knew that they were in trouble when, when this situation arose um, because that was something that was understood, right? The group interests being tantamount um, 
to what is being decided and, and that one needs to subvert any type of circumstance where an individual could potentially be threatening to that. Um, so slavery is one of the places that you see that because the identity of what it meant to be an enslaved African-American um, is something that is incredibly meaningful and incredibly defining of the lived experience of Blacks. And then further, we can see it in the period of Reconstruction. So after slavery is over and the Republican Party is seen as the party of emancipation, um, African-Americans are able to gain access to the franchise through the Civil War amendments. Um, and with that, they are then able to vote in individuals who represent the group interests, right? And, and particularly African-American candidates. Uh, and the power to do that at the ballot box, again, requires a collective understanding of how the group should be engaging and, and the group interest. And that, again, is another opportunity where you can see that endeavor um, happening and those individuals who are potentially threatening to that being socially sanctioned for that behavior. And and so one of the the overall overarching threads and frames of your book is to sort of also move beyond the kind of anecdotal and as you note sometimes perhaps misinterpreted um, data with regard to African Americans as voters and their political behavior. Can you talk a little bit about how this this framing and understanding is something that you and your co-author are were working on in terms of the book, in terms of getting at sort of what the reality is? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that is thought about for African-Americans' this behavior is that they're basically being sheep. I think that that's the misnomer that's put forth. Like kind of, they're not, Black people are voting for Black people because they're Black. Black people are voting um, for Democrats because they don't seem to know any better. I think even appeals that are made by people who say Black people shouldn't do that behavior often is is speaking of some sort of group think that is mindless, right? That they are not aware of, of the decision-making. And we push back on that strongly, like very strongly and argue, right, not only do African-Americans have a significant amount of agency in the decision that the decision that they're making, but that this is a strategic decision, right? This is a decision for a group that is a minority within a population where a majority is favored within the government system for basically who has power, trying to be able to have a say in what is going on, right? And also a group that has been oppressed and subjugated under that same identity within that same society, right? So the idea that they would then not only see a consciousness and, 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 a, and a, a strong identity with being Black, but it has this political piece to it, right? That there is a political component that is very defining to the experience. And we have a two-party system at the federal level in particular, where having to then choose between which party to go with is is a is a decision based off of a, 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 is a it's a pro-partisan decision right basically we we're going to go with a party that seems to embody or at least represent um to the best that it can uh, in, in terms of the two relative to in comparison uh the group interest for for african-americans right so how do we how are we able to maximize that? How are we able to make sure that our interests are being heard? Uh, so this isn't just something that happens overnight. Uh, this is something that has been long time, a long time in the making. This has been something that has become an understood norm of the group. Um, and it is a strategic 
decision in doing it. And, it, and it's something that because it is such a normalized form of political engagement for African-Americans, I think oftentimes when people ask African-Americans about it or discuss it, what seems like a very, um, uh, what seems like a, a response to it, whereas, for instance, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, to be Black is to be Democrat. People are like, see, you guys aren't, you aren't, you're engaging the dynamic nature of it. And I'm like, but, but they are. They are engaging the dynamic nature of it. They are recognizing the politics around it. And the strategic decision in this case is that the group has collectively decided to leverage its power within this one party. And and one of the points that I I was really fascinated um, about in terms of the sort of the basis of tracing the the sort of strategic choices um, and and as you note the sort of political decisions is the shift also that transpires over the course of a hundred or so years um, from the Republican Party, um, where African-Americans following the Civil War had to some degree put all their eggs. Um, And then the move, as you note, it's not about necessarily specifically the civil rights movement in the 1960s, but is uh, sort of historically spans a longer period of time can you talk a little bit about that that shift and and to some degree how this model of group behavior um, was part was part of what was going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, the shift really happens, you know, I, I think particularly right when we see the shift from the Republican Party with African-Americans and the beginnings of that, people sp- speak specifically to the period of the New Deal um, as, as a time period where you see that shift happening and, and the situations after the Great Depression, the sphere of, of economic decline and and what then has happened under FDR's leadership to try to resolve that with, with the New Deal policies. Um, and then moving into the period of, of civil rights, right, you have the shift there as well within the Southern Democrats in terms of how they're positioned, as well as Republicans um, over time taking on the Southern strategy as, as an approach and these appeals that are anti-civil rights. Um, and again, the collective behavior for African-Americans had been there all along, but where it then gets shifted to has a lot to do with the contextual factors that are at play, and especially with the role of racial policy coming in, that's serving as a, a significant point in time. At the same time, too, you also have to think about the fact that for a lot of African Americans, um, at various points in history, uh, especially prior to the Civil Rights Acts, uh, and the Voting Rights Act in particular, right, are being denied access to the franchise, right? So um, there is a bit more variation in, in even some of what is being observed in the data in terms of Black participation and their partisan loyalty, even though we still see some of the collective behavior, some of it is not as strong as we've seen kind of more in this contemporary setting. And part of that has to do with the fact that many people weren't even being able to vote, right? So you're not able to even observe that data from those time points. So this shift happens because of the political environment. But for African-Americans, being Black is still still a part of all those shifts, right? Like that shift does not move them uh, in a way that takes away the meaningfulness of this identity and the meaningfulness of then what is understood for the group interest. And even 
one may have particular self-interest um, that may outweigh that may be seen as significant, but the group interest being paramount, right? For for most African Americans being a key part of that. So even as the shift in the politics is going on, right, African Americans are still understanding where the need is to leverage that collective power to be able to have influence within the political system. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so this idea of influence in the political system, obviously, is a great driver with regard to sort of the political behavior here. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, how you teased out this information, the kind of models that you were looking at, and also the data that you had um, accumulated and some of the experiments that you did in in order to get at um, a lot of the conclusions that you were able to reach. Sure. Um, so in thinking about this, we had to look at first and foremost kind of one thing is, is we need, wanted to establish, right, that African-Americans are politically and economically diverse more so than people, I think, understand them to be, especially after you have the passage of civil rights legislation that gives access to economic opportunities for African-Americans that had previously been denied, right? So access in terms of collegiate access because uh, of, of, of affirmative action, um, you have things that become available economically for Blacks in terms of job opportunities, and so you see that diversity. We then want to assess as well other arguments for why we see Black political behavior the way it is. And one of the most dominant frameworks that had been in the literature thus far had been this linked fate framework, right? And so this is from Michael Dawson from the University of Chicago, and he argued in a book in the in the 90s called Behind the Mule that linked fate um, is understood from African-Americans is that it's a belief amongst African-Americans that what happens to the group has an effect on their individual lives. Now, this is still a thing. Linked fate is still very strongly reported amongst African-Americans. Most of them report that they have a a lot of linked fate with other Blacks. But when we look at it to predict partisanship, it didn't really work. Like we didn't see that in our model. So we, we sketched that out and, and couldn't find that effect. And other scholars couldn't find that effect either. So now we knew that the question of what explains this was still unexplained because this is the dominant framework in the field. And this one doesn't explain this. It explains some other things, like where people will stand on race policy, where Blacks uh, might support a Black candidate. Linked fate is a high predictor, but didn't explain this other thing. So then we decide that we're going to model um, and and look at how we can test something like racialized social constraint. And I think that that's the biggest thing that Ishmael and I um, have to kind of formulate is, you know, if we want to understand a phenomenon like racialized social constraint and say that social pressure uh, is what is maintaining partisanship, that in order for us to do that, how do you how do we conceptualize it? So one way we did it was to use survey data. And in using the survey data, we were able to, one, establish that African-Americans um, are 
in communities and spaces where the dominant network that they're in is is predominantly Black. We were also able to establish some evidence that people are considering the information, considering the viewpoints of their family members or peer groups or networks in terms of how they then participate in politics. And then we also wanted to look at, okay, if we're going to test racialized social constraint, can we observe it in survey questions, right? Uh, And so the American National Election Study was very nice for us to do this because they have race of interviewer variables in there that allow us to look at if we ask somebody about their partisanship and we vary and look at the race of the interviewer who does this, does in a face-to-face interview setting, does that influence even how they report their partisanship? Right. So that's just kind of an initial take on it. And what we find is that, yes, that actually is true. It's a conservative test of our theory. But at least to some degree, we see even in the reporting of one's partisanship, African-Americans who are even conservative in ideology are more likely to report that they're Democrat when being interviewed by another black person in a face to face interview than if they're interviewed by a white person and or if they conduct or they do the survey uh, answer online. We also did a series of experiments to try to examine this. And, and I think this is like the coolest part of our, our work uh, is trying to look at this and leverage this idea of social constraint. So we did one at a historically black college where we try to find out um, how people would respond to an opportunity to donate money that we've given them to one of the campaign organizations for either Barack Obama or Mitt Romney during the 2012 contest. And here we were able to put pit together um, group interest and self-interest. And we were able to say to individuals, okay, here's what we have. We have a situation where we're giving you money and you can donate it to one of these campaign organizations that supports either Romney or Obama. They didn't have the money for real, but this was just part of the setting of the study. And then we said to them, and in some cases, for some people in the participating experiment, we're going to, there's an incentive that if you donate to one of the campaigns, you could also receive some money yourself, right? But we are going to randomly select which campaign that is. Uh, And so in this case, they always were going to be given an incentive for donating to the Romney campaign with this money that we've given them, and then they would receive some money. Um, And then another group within that were able to make this decision, but now they were going to make this decision and people in the college would know what they did because we were going to report that decision in the student newspaper. Um, And so we have these groups all participating in this study. And what we observed from this is that when individuals in the study were being given this money, told they could donate it to one of these campaign organizations, and then were given an incentive that they could then donate the money. And if they donated to Mitt Romney, they would then receive money. They were likely to do some sort of donation to Romney so that they could get some money. But when they then knew that people would know what they did, they then decided to reduce the amount of their donations, right? Um, And again, this is a conservative test, but the simply the awareness that other Black individuals on the campus would know was something to diminish the likelihood that you were then going to make this donation. Um, and the same goes for another study that we did, where we look at, um, okay, well, what if we paired people side by side, like had them making this type of decision in a context where they're in a room with somebody else, right? And somebody of another race, and then somebody of the same race, and at another point by themselves. And let's put them into a room and make the same type of situation, uh, same type of scenario where we're going to give you some money to donate to one of these campaign organizations. Again, no money was actually donated to these campaigns, but we give them this money. And we also say, okay, but you know what, here's the money. But when you go in the room, 
you could decide to donate to the campaign or you could decide to keep the money for yourself. Right. Uh, And in this case, we paired them with people going into the rooms. And in the case of and those people were people who were working with us as part of the study. And so we told them to go in there and express the group norm when they go to make the donation, when they go in with the participant. And the person would walk in and say, I'm giving all my money to Barack Obama and then leave. Right. Uh, So now you have the pressure of somebody expressing the group norm. You now have a decision-making situation that one has to do, and you have a self-interest motivation, which is you could decide to take the money for yourself, or you could decide to donate it to either the Romney or the Obama campaign. Um, And so what we find in that study is that people disproportionately donate to Obama. So basically we didn't have many, and I think only two participants actually donate to Romney at all. And we also see that students are, or participants were more likely to donate to Obama after they were in the room with a black person expressing the norm of behavior versus when they were with a white person expressing the norm of behavior or when they were in the room by themselves right so again there you see this pressure so we had to think of these very interesting ways to try to gauge pressure and social pressure and social constraint and every time we were able to do this we were seeing consistent findings that gave us the impression and the takeaway in the book that this is actually the behavior and and this is how one would try to model it to demonstrate what we see happening every day and you start out the book you start very very much the very beginning talking about how um voters were kind of pressured through their networks to vote for Doug Jones um, in the special election, which is a kind of anecdotal version of a lot of what the experiments and the models were telling you. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, And I think what you saw in that contest uh, and and what we were hearing in terms of the the coverage of it was a lot of on-the-ground networks and on-the-ground efforts by African-American activists and African-American community organizers getting people engaged in that contest and and really informing individuals and letting it be known that the group interest and what is best for African-Americans in this contest is that we ensure that Roy Moore does not win, that we go with Doug Jones, right? So if there was any doubt about that, uh, let me tell you what it is, right? And that that's something that's moving within Black institutions and Black spaces. And in a space like Alabama, where racial segregation still is a very heavy part of everyday life, if not more so than we would see definitely even in northern cities, right, uh, and in northern states, right, that, that those individuals then are collectively engaging in a politic, right, that was surprising the next morning. People were shocked. They couldn't believe it, that not only was this gentleman not able to win this contest, but African-Americans so heavily voted in favor of, of, of Doug Jones, and African-American women in particular did that. You said it was like 90% um, in, in terms of African-American women in that particular contest, which is yes. kind of amazing. It is incredibly high. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we, and I knew in our book, we didn't get to get into detail about this. And I'm thinking this is like, it'd be a, few, a future research project on it. Um, but, you know, there is a gender dynamic that's going on. Like I would say that the strongest norm enforcers uh, in the group are African-American women. And we've seen that historically. When we look back, even in some of the research we found from Reconstruction, there were a number of testimonies given by Black men who I think um, during Reconstruction were trying to vote for like a Democratic candidate instead of a Republican and Black women openly like accosting them (laughs) for doing so uh, because it was understood that you don't do that. So 
Black women seem to be some of the strongest uh, norm, like people enforcing of the norm, uh, making sure that others are practicing with the norm. And I think that potentially has to do with something that comes on like the feminism and womanism side of things where Black women and, and a lot of women, but and women of color, think in terms of a, a, a group-centered, even family-centered political engagement in a capacity that is a bit different um, than we see of men, right? Uh, so there's a much more uh, group focus potentially in their behavior, which makes them then potentially stronger enforcers of, of something like this. Um, but we need to collect some more data for me to say that with more confidence. And, and I mean, I'm fascinated by that dimension in particular with regard to thinking about the role of gender within the group um, and how, you know, again, we often have these conversations about women, white, black, et cetera, um, working collectively and collaboratively as opposed to the model for men. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious and, and look forward to your next work on this topic. Um, I did want to ask you, and I know this is not necessarily the provenance of the book per se, but you sort of tip your hat at it occasionally throughout with regard to the comparisons with other groups that work in a, in a kind of similar kind of political behavior. And you get at this a little bit in the conclusion. Can you talk a little bit about some comparisons yeah, so people ask us all the time um, with this uh, this point of it, and so we we thought about it for the conclusion because we wanted to put forward that one, we think our framework is something that could be applied to other groups, right? That we even give, I think, in one of the earlier chapters, kind of a layout of what would you want to see within a group to be able to say that you have not only a clear norm, so you have to identify that, and finding a norm is hard, um, but two, right, that you see this norm being understood and disseminated amongst the group, and also that you can sanction individuals and those sanctions would be meaningful, right, and that we see that for, for other groups. So sometimes people have talked about, like, religious groups, and we, we've noted, too, for instance, people who live in enclaves like Jewish communities, for instance, may be a group that seems similar behavior. And we also talk about Southern whites um, at the end of the book, and, and get into some of the discussions there because not only do they have some of this the norm uh, behavior that we see developing and, and and continued on even and further in contemporary times right but that there also is a, a segregated space right so these are communities of individuals that are also still predominantly kind of comprised of the same kinds of individuals in terms of their political leanings. Um, there's an understood way in which the politics is supposed to work. Um, a lot of that has to do with, at points in history, being anti-civil rights um, or being against particular type of race-based policies, being uh, in support of particular kinds of conservative candidates, a lot of that being informed by religiosity, so evangelicalism as well. Uh, and then they're also in spaces, networks, institutions, where other individuals our understanding of what the group is believing in, right? And so that then serves as a way for you to see that enforcement. And if we even scale it up further, one could even talk about some of the the uh, things that we've observed within Southern whites, even within the Republican Party uh, and, the, and the polarization that we're seeing right now in our party politics um, and the role that we can see how sanctions have been used for individuals who have decided to step away from what is being understood as the group interest of the most importance um, and, and sanction for, for that behavior and, and publicly so, right? And, and within that group, that being particularly meaningful because those social ties matter. Uh, and so 
that is something that we thought was was a nice comparison because it shows how in another group with with different sets of of goals um, and, and different types of concerns that they want addressed. But yet underneath that, right, we see the same kind of strategic decision making going on that allows for them to continue to have influence and and voice within the political system with the goal of ensuring that those group interests get prioritized. And and one of the points that you sort of draw out through the book is the distinction that class does and doesn't have um, with regard to influencing Black political behavior. Um, so that economic distinctions that start to grow um, and questions of inequality that start to grow from the 1970s and 80s and 90s is still something that is often subsumed under the sort of norms and the group operation in terms of African-American political behavior. Can you talk a little bit about how what you saw in the data with regard to that? Yeah, so I'm um, just going back even to thinking about this concept of linked fate. Uh, Michael Dawson writes in his book about how education uh, in his research is the strongest predictor of, of linked fate for African-Americans. Um, and so those who are more educated are more likely to report a, a level of a linked fate. Uh, and and I think he notes to this, right, because I think what he wants to say is that even with Blacks who are very educated, we still see them being fairly strongly tied to the group, right, and believing that what happens to the group has an effect on them as an individual. Um, I would say the same goes along in some of the stuff that we are finding in our book as well, um, which is that the class dynamics, although that that is varying across the group and you have Blacks who are making up uh, significantly more of the middle class and upper middle class than we had seen previously in history, the understanding of the norm remains. And typically models in political science, uh, especially like models that talk about like pluralism and and what things would lead to people becoming more conservative or liberal and, and potentially even more Republican or Democrat in their in their political behavior, um, predicts that based off of economics, right? So as more economic uh, uh, achievement is is gained by an individual, the more likely they may engage in a politic, right, that has more economic uh uh, justification or or more economic uh, assessment in how they're going to determine that for themselves, like a self interest type of assessment. Uh, but for blacks, we we see that that's not the case, and I think it speaks a lot to how much race matters, even as one shifts in class dynamics, right? Like that that is not an escapable quality for them, uh, an escapable characteristic for them. It is something that is very defining to that experience, and and one still maintains those social networks and ties to other Blacks, even as as one is shifting potentially in their class status, right? And and that even at the highest levels, right, that's still understood that the norm for the group, right, the group interest is is vital to to how how African Americans are, are behaving in politics. Which I think then it gets exemplified because we, we note to it in the text a bit about kind of even celebrities who've been sanctioned um, for behavior that seems to be out of step with this understood norm. Um, and part of that and is because they are high profile, there is concern about you know, what they are signaling being defining for uh, people seeing that as a defining demonstration of where the group is positioned when it's not. Potentially those individuals have just decided to do this on their own. But also the expectation, yeah, you guys may have money, but you know what we do. Like, you know that this is, you know how the group works. And so if you are deciding Steve Harvey or Chrisette Michelle and even high profile while we were writing the book, Kanye West, to just kind of align with what seems to be not 
in line with where we are as the group in terms of our politics, we are going to call you out for it. Uh, so there is no exception made just because you've kind of moved into economic opportunities or spaces that allow for you to have more than the average African-American. The norm is understood. And you know that would be the response from, from people. Like, you know what it is. Uh, and so you don't get to escape that now because you've suddenly thought, like kind of come into more money. And if you do, if you decide to, that is fine. But know that socially, we would have an issue. Like African-Americans are going to have an issue with that. And so do not be surprised if you are then sanctioned for that decision in some way. So you can't be a sort of um, keep your head down uh, celebrity, as it were. Yeah, you can't you can't keep your head down celebrity. And and if you're going to hold, I mean, like, and there are black there are black Republicans, right? Like we have them. Like there's Tim Scott and there's Tim Scott. you know Clarence Thomas is a conservative. Uh, we we have people who are openly positioned in ways that would be kind of directly counter to the norm. And they are sanctioned for it, right? Like people openly like, call them out as a, as, a, as a appointed or even elected officials, let alone celebrities who are in a whole other space, right? Because they're not elected officials. So I think the public outcry becomes even, even more so um, accessible for people because now these are like folks that you are familiar with through other things besides, you know, legislators or uh, 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 judges, right? These are, these are the people who host game shows and put out music and, and you can't put your head in a hole. Like you're, you're, you're too public. You're too high profile to be, to be out of that. Situation. Yeah. It's fascinating. So are you and Ishmael working on another book? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure we will think of some things to, to go forward with this because um, I think we enjoyed the study and, and really enjoyed trying to get into the nitty gritty of, of the behavior that we saw. I think we are very interested in this gender component um, and, and wanting to know more there with Black women because I think they are you know, the standard bearers of, of the, the norm by far, right? Like they are most consistent, they are most reliable. I mean, I think we see the manifestations of that today. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens even in this election and what we would be able to walk away with, because I think the push that has come with now Biden being seen as more than likely to be the nominee. Um, and he even recently said in the debate, like, you know, well, my VP will definitely be a woman uh, or more than likely be a woman. And and I think people are like, and, and she should be black, like she should be a, a black woman because black women have been the most loyal, consistent members of the party in any, in any election within the last 50 years, in any contest, in any situation, win or lose, black women have been there with the party and, and deserve that representation because they've, they've earned it. Yeah. And so I look forward to possibly having you and Ishmael on again to talk about that research, I hope, <laughs> once we get through the pandemic. I know. <laughs> it's a small situation. I can't say to this point, because I think people were talking about and asking me um, about uh, Trump and even someone is talking about this, these the checks that are even going to come out in the midst of the pandemic and what that would do for African-American support for him since he's been doing the Black Voices for Trump campaigning and, and trying to appeal to Black voters. I don't think it's going to have that much sway. <laughs> and that would be based on the research that we have in the book. Uh, those self-interest motivations and, and that monetary incentive is no, still, still not enough. 
No. Well, well, given the the experiments that you were also doing, it suggests that it it's not the the monetary sort of incentive does not necessarily do it. It doesn't necessarily do it. So it even that which I'm sure will be touted by by his campaign going forward when, once this happens. But yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I look forward to reading more of your research, uh, Cheryl, and thank you for joining me on the New Books Network. Um, I'm wondering, people can get your book, I'm assuming, at Princeton University Press website? Yes, they can. Okay. We will direct people there to pick up a copy of Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. This was published by Princeton University Press in 2020 and is authored by Ishmael K. White and Cheryl N. Laird. And thank you so much for joining me today to talk about it. Thank you for having me.